Isis Audiobooks presents an unabridged recording of Going Postal, written by Terry Pratchett, read by Stephen Briggs. The 9,000-Year Prologue The flotillas of the dead sailed around the world on underwater rivers. Very nearly nobody knew about them, but the theory is easy to understand. It runs, the sea is, after all, in many respects, only a wetter form of air, and it is known that air is heavier the lower you go and lighter the higher you fly. As a storm-tossed ship founders and sinks, therefore, it must reach a depth where the water below it is just viscous enough to stop its fall. In short, it stops sinking and ends up floating on an underwater surface, beyond the reach of the storms but far above the ocean floor. It's calm there, dead calm. Some stricken ships have rigging, some even have sails, Many still have crew tangled in the rigging or lashed to the wheel. But the voyages still continue, aimlessly, with no harbour in sight. Because there are currents under the ocean, and so the dead ships with their skeleton crews sail on around the world over sunken cities and between drowned mountains until rot and shipworms eat them away and they disintegrate. Sometimes an anchor drops all the way to the dark, cold calmness of the abyssal plain, and disturbs the stillness of centuries by throwing up a cloud of silt. One nearly hit Ang Hammerad, where he sat watching the ships drift by far overhead. He remembered it because it was the only really interesting thing to happen in the last 9,000 years. The One Month Prologue There was this disease that the Klaxmen got, it was like the illness known as calentia, which sailors experienced when, after having been becalmed for weeks under a pitiless sun, they suddenly believed that the ship was surrounded by green fields and stepped overboard. Sometimes the claxmen thought they could fly. There was about eight miles between the big semaphore towers, and when you were at the top you were maybe 150 feet above the plains. Work up there too long without a hat on, they said, and the tower you were on got taller, and the nearest tower got closer, and maybe you thought you could jump from one to the other, or ride on the invisible messages sleeting between the towers, or perhaps you thought that you were a message. Perhaps, as some said, all this was nothing more than a disturbance in the brain caused by the wind in the rigging. No one knew for sure. People who step onto the air 150 feet above the ground seldom have much to discuss afterwards. The tower shifted gently in the wind, but that was OK. There were lots of new designs in this tower. It stored the wind to power its mechanisms. It bent rather than broke. It acted more like a tree than a fortress. You could build most of it on the ground and raise it into place in an hour. It was a thing of grace and beauty, and it could send messages up to four times faster than the old towers, thanks to the new shutter system and the coloured lights. At least, it would be able to, once they sorted out a few lingering problems. The young man climbed swiftly to the very top of the tower. For most of the way, he was in clinging grey morning mist, and then he was rising through glorious sunlight, the mist spreading below him, all the way to the horizon like a sea. He paid the view no attention. He'd never dreamed of flying. He dreamed of mechanisms, of making things work better than they'd ever done before. Right now... He wanted to find out what was making the new shutter array stick again. He oiled the sliders, 
checked the tension on the wires, and then swung himself out over fresh air to check the shutters themselves. It wasn't what we were supposed to do, but every linesman knew it was the only way to get things done. Anyway, it was perfectly safe if you... There was a clink. He looked back and saw the snap hook of his safety rope lying on the walkway, saw the shadow, felt the terrible pain in his fingers, heard the scream and dropped like an anchor. Chapter One The Angel In which our hero experiences hope, the greatest gift, the bacon sandwich of regret. Sombre reflections on capital punishment from the hangman. Famous last words. Our hero dies. Angels. Conversations about. Inadvisability of misplaced offers regarding broomsticks. An unexpected ride. A world free of honest men. A man on the hop. There is always a choice. They say that the prospect of being hanged in the morning concentrates a man's mind wonderfully. Unfortunately, what the mind inevitably concentrates on is that, in the morning, it will be in a body that is going to be hanged. The man going to be hanged had been named Moist von Lipvig by doting, if unwise, parents, but he was not going to embarrass the name, insofar as that was still possible, by being hung under it. To the world in general, and particularly on that bit of it known as the death warrant, he was Alfred Spangler. And he took a more positive approach to the situation, and had concentrated his mind on the prospect of not being hanged in the morning, and, most particularly, on the prospect of removing all the crumbling mortar from around a stone in his cell wall with a spoon. So far the work had taken him five weeks, and reduced the spoon to something like a nail file. Fortunately, no one ever came to change the bedding here, or else they would have discovered the world's heaviest mattress. It was a large and heavy stone that was currently the object of his attentions, and at some point a huge staple had been hammered into it as an anchor for manacles. Moist sat down, facing the wall, gripped the iron ring in both hands, braced his legs against the stones on either side, and heaved. His shoulders caught fire, and a red mist filled his vision, but the block slid out with a faint and inappropriate tinkling noise. Moist managed to ease it away from the hole and peered inside. At the far end was another block, and the mortar around it looked suspiciously strong and fresh. Just in front of it was a new spoon. It was shiny. As he studied it, he heard the clapping behind him. He turned his head, tendons twanging a little riff of agony, and saw several of the wardens watching him through the bars. "'Well done, Mr Spangler,' said one of them. "'Ron here owes me five dollars. I told him you were a sticker. He's a sticker,' I said. "'You set this up, did you, Mr Wilkinson?' said Moist weakly, watching the glint of light on the spoon. "'Oh, not us, sir. Lord Vetinar is orders. He insists that all condemned prisoners should be offered the prospect of freedom.' "'Freedom?' "'But there's a damn great stone through there.' "'Yes, there is that, sir, yes, there is that,' said the warden. "'It's only the prospect, you see, not actual free freedom as such. <laughs> "'That'd be a bit daft, eh?' "'I suppose so, yes,' said Moist. "'He didn't say, you bastards. "'The wardens had treated him quite civilly these past six weeks, "'and he made a point of getting on with people. "'He was very, very good at it. "'People's skills were part of his stock in trade. "'They were nearly the whole of it.' Besides, these people had big sticks. 
So, speaking carefully, he added, "'Some people might consider this cruel, Mr. Wilkinson.' "'Yes, sir. We asked him about that, sir, but he said no, it wasn't. "'He said it provided,' his forehead wrinkled, all therapy, healthy exercise, prevented moping, "'and offered that greatest of all treasures, which is hope, sir.' "'Hope,' muttered Moist glumly. "'Not upset, are you, sir?' Upset? Why should I be upset, Mr. Wilkinson? Only the last bloke we had in this cell, he managed to get down that drain, sir. Very small man, very agile. Moist looked at the little grid in the floor. He dismissed it out of hand. Does it lead to the river, he said. The warden grinned. You'd think so, wouldn't you? He was really upset when we fished him out. "'Nice to see you've entered into the spirit of the thing, sir. "'You've been an example to all of us, sir, the way you kept going. "'Stuffing all the dust in your mattress. "'Very clever, very tidy, very neat. "'It's really cheered us up having you in here. "'Oh, by the way, Mrs Wilkinson says thanks very much for the fruit basket. "'Very posh it is. It's got kumquats even. "'Don't mention it, Mr Wilkinson. "'The warden was a bit green about the kumquats, "'cause he only got dates in his, but I told him, sir, "'that fruit baskets is like life.' Until you've got the pineapple off of the top, you never know what's underneath. He says thank you too. Glad he liked it, Mr Wilkinson, said Moist absent-mindedly. Several of his former landladies had brought in presents for the poor, confused boy, and Moist always invested in generosity. A career like his was all about style, after all. On that uh, general subject, sir, said Mr Wilkinson, me and the lads were wondering if you might like to unburden yourself at this point in time on the subject of the whereabouts of the place where the location of the spot is where, um, not to beat about the bush, you hid all that money you stole. The jail went silent. Even the cockroaches were listening. No, I couldn't do that, Mr Wilkinson, said Moist loudly, after a decent pause for dramatic effect. He tapped his jacket pocket, held up a finger and winked. The warders grinned back. We understand totally, sir. "'Now I'd get some rest if I was you, sir, "'cause we're hanging you in half an hour,' said Mr Wilkinson. "'Hey, don't I get breakfast? "'Breakfast isn't until seven o'clock, sir,' said the warder reproachfully. "'But tell you what, I'll do you a bacon sandwich, "'cause it's you, Mr Spangler.' "'And now it was a few minutes before dawn, "'and it was him being led down the short corridor "'and out into the little room under the scaffold. "'Moist realised he was looking at himself from a distance.' as if part of himself was floating outside his body like a child's balloon, ready, as it were, for him to let go of the string. The room was lit by light coming through cracks in the scaffold floor above, and, significantly, from around the edges of the large trapdoor. The hinges of said door were being carefully oiled by a man in a hood. He stopped when he saw the party had arrived and said, "'Good morning, Mr Spangler!' He raised the hood helpfully. "'It's me, sir, Daniel Wondrop Trooper. "'I am your executioner for today, sir. "'Don't you worry, sir, I've hanged dozens of people. "'We'll soon have you out of here.' "'Is it true that if a man isn't hanged after three attempts, "'he's reprieved, Dan?' said Moist, "'as the executioner carefully wiped his hands on a rag. "'So I've heard, sir, so I've heard. "'But they don't call me Wondrop for nothing, sir. "'And will, sir, be having the black bag today? "'Will it help?' "'Some people think it makes them look a bit more dashing, sir, "'and it stops that pop-eyed look. "'It's more a crowd thing, really. "'Quite a big one out there this morning. "'Nice piece about you in the Times yesterday, I thought. "'All them people saying what a nice young man you were and everything. Eh, "'Would you mind signing the rope beforehand, sir? "'I mean, I won't have the chance to ask you afterwards, eh?' "'Signing the rope,' 
said Moist. Yes, sir, said the hangman. It's sort of traditional. There's a lot of people out there who buy old rope. Specialist collectors, you could say. A bit strange, but it takes all sorts, eh? Worth more signed, of course. He flourished a length of stout rope. I've got a special pen that signs on rope. One signature every couple of inches. Straightforward signature. No dedication needed. Worth money to me, sir. I'd be very grateful. Uh, so grateful that you won't hang me, then, said Moist, taking the pen. This got an appreciative laugh. Mr. Trooper watched him sign along the length, nodding happily. "'Well done, sir. That's my pension plan you're signing there. "'Now, are we ready, everyone?' "'Not me,' said Moist quickly, to another round of general amusement. "'You're a card, Mr. Spangler,' said Mr. Wilkinson. "'It won't be the same without you around, and that's the truth.' "'Not for me, at any rate,' said Moist. "'This was once again treated like rapier wit.' "'Moist sighed. "'Do you really think all this deters crime, Mr. Trooper?' he said. "'Well, in the generality of things, I'd say it's hard to tell, "'given that it's hard to find evidence of crimes not committed,' said the hangman, "'giving the trap-door a final rattle. "'But in the specificality, sir, I'd say it's very efficacious.' "'Meaning what?' said Moist. "'Meaning I've never seen someone appear more than once, sir. "'Shall we go?' There was a stir when they climbed up into the chilly morning air, followed by a few boos and even some applause. People were strange like that. Steal five dollars and you are a petty thief. Steal thousands of dollars and you are either a government or a hero. Moist stared ahead while the roll call of his crimes was read out. He couldn't help feeling it was so unfair. He'd never so much as tapped someone on the head. He'd never even broken down a door. He had picked locks on occasion, but he'd always locked them again behind him. Apart from all those repossessions, bankruptcies and sudden insolvencies, what had he actually done that was bad as such? "'He'd only been moving numbers around. "'Nice crowd turned out today,' said Mr. Trooper, "'tossing the end of the rope over the beam "'and busying himself with knots. "'Lots of press, too. "'What gallows covers them all, of course. "'There's the Times and the Pseudopolis Herald, "'probably because of that bank that collapsed there, "'and I heard there's a man from the Store Plains dealer, too. "'Very good financial section. "'I always keep an eye on used rope prices. "'Looks like a lot of people want to see you dead, sir.' Moist was aware that a black coach had drawn up at the rear of the crowd. There was no coat of arms on the door, unless you were in on the secret, which was that Lord Vetinari's coat of arms featured a sable shield, black on black. You had to admit, the bastard had style. Hm? What? he said, in response to a nudge. I asked if you have any last words, Mr Spangler, said the hangman. It's customary. I wondered if you might have thought of any. I wasn't actually expecting to die, said Moist. And that was it. He really hadn't, until now. He'd been certain that something would turn up. "'Good one, sir,' said Mr Wilkinson. "'We'll go with that, shall we?' Moist narrowed his eyes. The curtain on the coach window had twitched. The coach door had opened. Hope, that greatest of all treasures, ventured a little glitter. "'No, they're not my actual last words,' he said. "'Um, let me think.' A slight, clerk-like figure was descending from the coach. "'Um, it's not as bad a thing I do now. Um... Ah, oh, it all made some kind of sense now. Vetinari was out to scare him, that was it. That would be just like the man from what Moist had heard. There was going to be a reprieve. I, um, I... Down below, the clerk was having difficulty getting through the press of people. Do you mind speeding up a bit, Mr Spangler? said the hangman. Fair's fair, eh? I want to get it right, said Moist haughtily, watching the clerk negotiate his way around a large troll. "'Yes, but there's a limit, sir,' said the hangman, annoyed at this breach of etiquette. "'Otherwise you could go on there, um, um, for days. Short and sweet, sir, that's the style.' "'Right, uh, right,' said Moist. "'Er, uh, oh, look! 
See that man there waving at you? The hangman glanced down at the clerk, who'd struggled to the front of the crowd. I bring a message from Lord Vetinari, the man shouted. Right, said Moist. Uh, he says, get on with it, it's long past dawn, said the clerk. Oh, said Moist, staring at the black coach. That damned veterinary had a warder's sense of humour too. Come on, Mr Spangler, you don't want to get me into trouble, do you? said the hangman, patting him on the shoulder. Just a few words and then we can all get on with our lives. Present company accepted, obviously. So this was it. It was, in some strange way, rather liberating. You didn't have to fear the worst that could happen any more, because this was it, and it was nearly over. The warder had been right. What you had to do in this life was get past the pineapple, Moist told himself. It was big and sharp and knobbly, but there might be peaches underneath. It was a myth to live by, and so, right now, totally useless. In that case, said Moist von Lipvig, I commend my soul to any god that can find it. Nice, said the hangman, and pulled the lever. Alfred Spangler died. It was generally agreed that they had been good last words. Ah, Mr. Lipvig, said a distant voice, getting closer. I see you are awake, and still alive at the present time. There was a slight inflection to that last phrase, which told Moist that the length of the present time was entirely in the gift of the speaker. He opened his eyes. He was sitting in a comfortable chair. At a desk opposite him, sitting with his hands steepled reflectively in front of his pursed lips, was Lord Havelock Vetinari, under whose idiosyncratically despotic rule Ankh-Morpork had become the city where, for some reason, everyone wanted to live. An ancient animal sense also told Moist that other people were standing behind the comfortable chair, and that it could be extremely uncomfortable should he make any sudden movements but they couldn't be as terrible as the thin, black-robed man with the fussy little beard and the pianist's hands who was watching him. "'Shall I tell you about angels, Mr. Lipvig?' said the patrician pleasantly. "'I know two interesting facts about them.' Moist grunted. There were no obvious escape routes in front of him, and turning around was out of the question. His neck ached horribly. "'Oh, yes, you were hanged,' said Vetinari. "'A very precise science hanging. Mr. Trooper is a master. "'The slippage and thickness of the rope, whether the knot is placed here rather than there, "'the relationship between weight and distance, though I'm sure the man could write a book. "'You were hanged to within half an inch of your life, I understand. "'Only an expert standing right next to you would have spotted that, "'and in this case the expert was our friend Mr. Trooper. "'No?' Alfred Spangler is dead, Mr. Lipvig. Three hundred people would swear they saw him die. He leaned forward. And so, appropriately, it is of angels I wish to talk to you now. Moist managed to grunt. The first interesting thing about angels, Mr. Lipvig, is that sometimes, very rarely, at a point in a man's career where he has made such a foul and tangled mess of his life that death appears to be the only sensible option... An angel appears to him, or, I should say, unto him, and offers him a chance to go back to the moment when it all went wrong, and this time do it right. Mr. Lipvig, I should like you to think of me as an angel. Moist stared. He'd felt the snap of the rope, the choke of the noose. He'd seen the blackness swelling up. He'd died. I'm offering you a job, Mr. Lipvig. Alfred Spangler is buried, but Mr. Lipvig has a future. It may, of course, be a very short one if he is stupid. 
I'm offering you a job, Mr. Lipfig. Work for wages. I realise the concept may be unfamiliar. Only as a form of hell, Moist thought. The job is that of Postmaster General of the Ankh-Morpork Post Office. Moist continued to stare. May I just add, Mr. Lipfig, that behind you there is a door. If at any time in this interview you feel you wish to leave, you have only to step through it and you will never hear from me again. Moist filed that under deeply suspicious. Do continue. The job, Mr. Lipvig, involves the refurbishment and running of the city's postal service, preparation of the international packets, maintenance of post office property, etc., etc. If you stick a broom up my arse, I could probably sweep the floor too, said a voice. Moist realised it was his. His brain was a mess. It had come as a shock to him that the afterlife was this one. Lord Vetinari gave him a long, long look. "'Well, if you wish,' he said, and turned to a hovering clerk. "'Drum not. Does the housekeeper have a store cupboard on this floor, do you know?' "'Oh, yes, my lord,' said the clerk. "'Shall I—' "'It was a joke!' Moist burst out. "'Oh, I'm sorry. I hadn't realised said Lord Vetinari, turning back to Moist. "'Do tell me, if you feel obliged to make another one, will you?' "'Look,' said Moist, "'I don't know what's happening here, but I don't know anything about delivering post.' "'Mr. Lipvig, this morning you had no experience at all of being dead. "'And yet, but for my intervention, "'you would nevertheless have turned out to be extremely good at it,' "'said Lord Vetinari sharply. "'It just goes to show. "'You never know until you try.' "'But when you sentenced me,' Vetinari raised a pale hand. "'Nah,' he said. "'Moist's brain, at least aware that it needed to do some work here, "'stepped in and replied, "Um, "'When you sentenced Alfred Spangler, well done, do carry on. "'You said he was a natural-born criminal, a fraudster by vocation, "'a habitual liar, a perverted genius, and totally untrustworthy. "'Are you accepting my offer, Mr. Lipvig?' said Vetinari sharply. Moist looked at him. "'Excuse me,' he said, standing up. "'I'd just like to check something.' There were two men, dressed in black, standing behind his chair. It wasn't a particularly neat black, more the black worn by people who just don't want little marks to show. They looked like clerks until you met their eyes. They stood aside as Moist walked towards the door, which, as promised, was indeed there. He opened it very carefully. There was nothing beyond, and that included a floor.' In the manner of one who is going to try all possibilities, he took the remnant of the spoon out of his pocket and let it drop. It was quite a long time before he heard the jingle. Then he went back and sat in the chair. "'The prospect of freedom,' he said. "'Exactly,' said Lord Vetinari. "'There is always a choice. "'You mean, I could choose certain death?' "'A choice nevertheless,' said Vetinari. "'Or perhaps an alternative.' "'You see, I believe in freedom, Mr. Lipvig. "'Not many people do, although they will, of course, protest otherwise. "'And no practical definition of freedom would be complete "'without the freedom to take the consequences. "'Indeed, it is the freedom upon which all the others are based. "'Now, will you take the job? "'No one will recognise you, I am sure. "'No one ever recognises you, it would appear.' "'Moist shrugged. "'All right.' "'Of course I accept as natural-born criminal, habitual liar, fraudster, "'and totally untrustworthy perverted genius. 
Capital! Welcome to government service, said Lord Vetinari, extending his hand. I pride myself on being able to pick the right man. The wage is twenty dollars a week, and I believe the postmaster general has use of a small apartment in the main building. I think there's a hat, too. I shall require regular reports. Good day. He looked down at his paperwork. He looked up. You appear to be still here, Postmaster General. Well, that's it, said Moist, aghast. One minute I'm being hanged, next minute you're employing me. Let me see. Yes, I think so. No, no, of course. Drumnot, do give Mr. Lipvig his keys. The clerk stepped forward, handed Moist a huge, rusted key ring full of keys, and proffered a clipboard. Sign here, please, Postmaster General, he said. Hold on a minute, Moist thought. This is only one city. It's got gates. It's completely surrounded by different directions to run. Does it matter what I sign? Certainly, he said, and scribbled his name. Your correct name, if you please, said Lord Vetinari, not looking up from his desk. What name did he sign, Drumnod? The clerk craned his head. Uh, Ethel Stake, my lord, as far as I can make out. Do try to concentrate, Mr. Lipvig, said Vetinari wearily, still apparently reading the paperwork. Moist signed again. After all, what would it matter in the long run? And it would certainly be a long run if he couldn't find a horse. And that only leaves the matter of your parole, officer, said Lord Vetinari, still engrossed in the paper before him. Parole, officer? Yes. I'm not completely stupid, Mr. Lipvig. He will meet you outside the post office building in ten minutes. Good day. When Moist had left, Drumnot coughed politely and said, uh, do you think you'll turn up there, my lord? One must always consider the psychology of the individual, said Vetinari, correcting the spelling on an official report. That is what I do all the time, and lamentably, Drumnot, you do not always do. That is why he has walked off with your pencil. Always move fast. You never know what's catching you up. Ten minutes later, Moist von Lipvig was well outside the city. He'd bought a horse, which was a bit embarrassing, but speed had been of the essence, and he'd only had time to grab one of his emergency stashes from its secret hiding place and pick up a skinny old screw from the bargain box in Hobson's livery stable. At least it had been no irate citizen going to the watch. No one had bothered him. No one looked at him twice. No one ever did. The city gates had indeed been wide open. The plains lay ahead of him, full of opportunity. And he was good at parlaying nothing into something. For example, at the first little town he came to, he'd go to work on this old nag with a few simple techniques and ingredients that'd make it worth twice the price he paid for it, at least for about twenty minutes or until it rained. Twenty minutes would be enough time to sell it and, with any luck, pick up a better horse worth slightly more than the asking price. He'd do it again at the next town, and in three days, maybe four, he'd have a horse worth owning. But that would be just a sideshow, something to keep his hand in, He'd got three very nearly diamond rings sewn into the lining of his coat, a real one in a secret pocket in the sleeve, and a very nearly gold dollar sewn cunningly into the collar. These were, to him, what his saw and hammer are to a carpenter. They were primitive tools, but they'd put him back in the game. There is a saying, You can't fool an honest man, which is much quoted by people who make a profitable living by fooling honest men. Moist never tried it, knowingly, anyway. If you did fool an honest man, he tended to complain to the local watch, and these days they were harder to buy off. 
fooling dishonest men was a lot safer and somehow more sporting. And, of course, there were so many more of them. You hardly had to aim. Half an hour after arriving in the town of Hapley, where the big city was a tower of smoke on the horizon, he was sitting outside an inn, downcast, with nothing in the world but a genuine diamond ring worth a hundred dollars and a pressing need to get home to Genua, where his poor, aged mother was dying of gnats. Eleven minutes later he was standing patiently outside a jeweller's shop, inside which the jeweller was telling a sympathetic citizen that the ring the stranger was prepared to sell for twenty dollars was worth seventy-five. Even jewellers have to make a living. And thirty-five minutes later he was riding out on a better horse with five dollars in his pocket, leaving behind a gloating, sympathetic citizen who, despite having been bright enough to watch Moist's hands carefully, was about to go back to the jeweller to try to sell for seventy-five dollars a shiny brass ring with a glass stone that was worth fifty pence of anybody's money. The world was blessedly free of honest men and wonderfully full of people who believed they could tell the difference between an honest man and a crook. He tapped his jacket pocket. The jailers had taken the map off him, of course, probably while he was busy being a dead man. It was a good map, and in studying it, Mr Wilkinson and his chums would learn a lot about decryption, geography, and devious cartography. They wouldn't find in it the whereabouts of 150,000 Ankh-Morpork dollars in mixed currencies, though, because the map was a complete and complex fiction. However... Moist entertained a wonderful, warm feeling inside to think that they would, for some time, possess that greatest of all treasures, which is hope. Anyone who couldn't simply remember where he stashed a great big fortune deserved to lose it, in Moist's opinion. But for now, he'd have to keep away from it, while having it to look forward to. Moist didn't even bother to note the name of the next town. It had an inn, that was enough. He took a room with a view over a disused alley, checked that the window opened easily, ate an adequate meal, and had an early night. Not bad at all, he thought. This morning he'd been on the scaffold with the actual noose around his actual neck. Tonight he was back in business. All he needed to do now was grow a beard again and keep away from Ankh-Morpork for six months. Or perhaps only three. Moist had a talent. He'd also acquired a lot of skills so completely that they were second nature. He'd learned to be personable, but something in his genetics made him unmemorable. He had the talent for not being noticed, for being a face in the crowd. People had difficulty describing him. He was... he was about. He was about twenty, or about thirty. On watch reports across the continent, he was anywhere between, oh, about six feet two inches and five feet nine inches tall, hair all shades from mid-brown to blonde, and his lack of distinguishing features included his entire face. He was about average. What people remembered was the furniture, things like spectacles and moustaches, so he always carried a selection of both. They remembered names and mannerisms, too. He had hundreds of those. Oh, and they remembered that they'd been richer before they met him. At three in the morning, the door burst open. It was a real burst. Bits of wood clattered off the wall, but Moist was already out of bed and diving for the window before the first of them hit the floor. It was an automatic reaction that owed nothing to thought. Besides, he'd checked before lying down, and there was a large water barrel outside that would break his fall. It wasn't there now. Whoever had stolen it had not stolen the ground it stood on, however, and it broke Moist's fall by twisting his ankle. He pulled himself up, 
keening softly in agony and hopping along the alley, using the wall for support. The inn's stables were around the back. All he had to do was pull himself up onto a horse, any horse. Mr. Leipvig, a big voice bellowed. Oh, gods, it was a troll. It sounded like a troll. A big one, too. He didn't know he got any down here outside the cities. You can't run and you can't hide, Mr. Leipvig. Hold on, hold on. He hadn't given his real name to anyone in this place, had he? But all this was background thinking. Someone was after him, therefore he would run, or hop. He risked a look behind him when he reached the back gate to the stables. There was a red glow in his room. Surely they weren't torching the place over a matter of a few dollars. How stupid! Everyone knew that if you got lumbered with a good fake, you palmed it off onto some other sucker as soon as possible, didn't they? There was no helping some people. His horse was alone in the stable and seemed unimpressed to see him. He got the bridle on while hopping on one foot. There was no point in bothering with a saddle. He knew how to ride without a saddle. Hell, he'd once ridden without his pants too, but luckily all the tar and feathers helped him stick to the horse. He was the world champion at leaving town in a hurry. He went to lead the horse out of the stall and heard the clink. He looked down and kicked some straw away. There was a bright yellow bar joining two short lengths of chain with a yellow shackle attached, one for each leg. The only way this horse would go anywhere was by hopping, just like him. They'd clamped it. They'd bloody clamped it. Oh, Mr. Leapwig, the voice boomed out across the stable yard. Do you want to know the rules, Mr. Leapwig? He looked around in desperation. There was nothing in here to use as a weapon, and in any case weapons made him nervous, which was why he'd never, ever carried one. Weapons raised the ante far too high. It was much better to rely on a gift for talking his way out of things, confusing the issue, and if that failed, some well-soled shoes and a cry of, Look! What's that over there? But he had a definite feeling that while he could talk as much as he liked, out here no one was going to listen. As for speeding away, he'd just have to rely on hop. There was a yard broom and a wooden feed bucket in the corner. He stuck the head of the broom under his armpit to make a crutch, and grabbed the bucket handle as heavy footsteps thudded towards the stable door. When the door was pushed open, he swung the bucket as hard as he could and felt it shatter. Splinters filled the air. A moment later, there was the thump of a heavy body hitting the ground. Moist hopped over it and plunged unsteadily into the dark. Something as tough and hard as a shackle snapped around his good ankle. He hung from the broom handle for a second and then collapsed. I have nothing but good feelings toward you, Mr. Lipwig, boomed the voice cheerfully. Moist groaned. The broom must have been kept as an ornament because it certainly hadn't been used much on the accumulations in the stable yard. On the positive side, this meant he had fallen into something soft. On the negative side, it meant that he had fallen into something soft. Someone grabbed a handful of his coat and lifted him bodily out of the muck. Up we get, Mr. Lipwig. It's pronounced Lipvig, you moron, he moaned. A V, not a W. Up we get, Mr. Lipvig, said the booming voice as his broom crutch was pushed under his arm. What the hell are you? Lipvig managed. I am your parole officer, Mr. Lipvig. Moist managed to turn around and looked up and then up again into a gingerbread man's face with two glowing red eyes in it. When it spoke, 
Its mouth was a glimpse into an inferno. A golem? You're a damned golem! The thing picked him up in one hand and slung him over its shoulder. It ducked into the stables and, moist, upside down with his nose pressed against the terracotta of the creature's body, realised that it was picking up his horse with the other hand. There was a brief whinny. "'We must make haste, Mr. Lipvig. You are due in front of Lord Vetinari at eight o'clock, and at work by nine. Moist groaned. "'Ah, Mr. Lipvig, regrettably we meet again,' said Lord Vetinari. It was eight o'clock in the morning. Moist was swaying. His ankle felt better, but it was the only part of him that did. "'It walked all night,' he said, "'all damn night, carrying a horse as well.' "'Do sit down, Mr. Lipvig,' said Vetinari, looking up from the table and gesturing wearily to the chair. "'By the way, it is a he.' "'An honorific in this case, clearly, but I have great hopes of Mr. Pump.' Moist saw the glow on the walls as, behind him, the golem smiled. Vetinari looked down at the table again, and seemed to lose interest in Moist for a moment. A slab of stone occupied most of the table. Little carvings of dwarfs and trolls covered it. It looked like some kind of game. "'Mr. Pump,' said Moist. "'Hm?' said Vetinari moving his head to look at the board from a slightly different viewpoint. Moist leaned towards the patrician and jerked a thumb in the direction of the golem. "'That,' he said, "'is Mr. Pump?' "'No,' said Lord Vetinari, leaning forward likewise, and suddenly, completely and disconcertingly, focusing on Moist. "'He is Mr. Pump. "'Mr. Pump is a government official.' Mr. Pump does not sleep. Mr. Pump does not eat. And Mr. Pump, Postmaster General, does not stop. And that means what, exactly? It means that if you are thinking of, say, finding a ship headed for 4X on the basis that Mr. Pump is big and heavy and travels only at walking pace, Mr. Pump will follow you. You have to sleep. Mr. Pump does not. Mr. Pump does not breathe. The deep, abyssal plains of the oceans present no barrier to Mr. Pump. Four miles an hour is 672 miles in a week. It all adds up. And when Mr. Pump catches you... Ah, now, said Moist, holding up a finger, let me stop you there. I know golems are not allowed to hurt people. Lord Vetinari raised his eyebrows. Good heavens, wherever did you hear that? "'It's written on something inside their heads, a scroll or something, isn't it?' said Moist, uncertainty rising. "'Oh, dear!' the patrician sighed. "'Mr. Pump, just break one of Mr. Lipvig's fingers, will you? Neatly, if you please.' "'Yes, your lordship,' the golem lumbered forward. "'Hey, no, what?' Moist waved his hands wildly and knocked game pieces tumbling. "'Wait! Wait! There's a rule! A golem mustn't harm a human being or allow a human being to come to harm!' Vetinari raised a finger. "'Just wait one moment, please, Mr. Pump. Very well, Mr. Lipvig. Can you remember the next bit?' "'The next bit? What next bit?' said Moist. "'There isn't a next bit!' Lord Vetinari raised an eyebrow. "'Mr. Pump,' he said. "'Unless ordered to do so by duly constituted authority,' said the golem. "'I've never heard that bit before,' said Moist. 
"'Haven't you?' said Lord Vetinari, in apparent surprise. "'I can't imagine who would fail to include it. "'A hammer can hardly be allowed to refuse to hit the nail on the head, "'nor a saw make moral judgments about the nature of the timber. "'In any case, I employ Mr. Trooper the Hangman, "'who, of course, you have met, and the City Watch, "'the regiments, and, from time to time, other specialists, "'who are fully entitled to kill in their own defence "'or in protection of the City and its interests.' Vetinari started to pick up the fallen pieces and replace them delicately on the slab. "'Why should Mr. Pump be any different, just because he is made of clay? Ultimately, so are we all. Mr. Pump will occupy your place of work. The fiction will be that he is your bodyguard, as befits a senior government official. We alone will know he has additional instructions. Golems are highly moral creatures by nature, Mr. Lipvig, but you may find their morality a shade old-fashioned. Additional instructions, said Moist, and would you mind telling me exactly what his additional instructions are? Yes. The patrician blew a speck of dust off a little stone troll and put it on its square. And, said Moist, after a pause, Vetinari sighed, yes, I would mind telling you exactly what they are. You have no rights in this matter. "'We have impounded your horse, by the way, "'since it was used in the committal of a crime.' "'This is cruel and unusual punishment,' said Moist. "'Indeed,' said Vetinari. "'I offer you a light desk job, "'comparative freedom of movement, "'working in the fresh air. "'No, I feel that my offer might well be unusual, "'but cruel, I think not. "'However,' "'I believe down in the cellars we do have some ancient punishments "'which are extremely cruel, and in many cases quite unusual, "'if you would like to try them for the purposes of comparison. "'And, of course, there is always the option of dancing the sisal two-step.' "'The what?' said Moist. "'Drumnot leaned down and whispered something in his master's ear. "'Oh, "'I apologise, said Vetinari. "'I meant, of course, the hemp fandango. "'It is your choice, Mr. Lipvig. "'It is always a choice, Mr. Lipvig. "'Oh, and, by the way, "'do you know the second interesting thing about angels?' "'What angels?' said Moist, angry and bewildered. "'Oh, dear, people just don't pay attention,' said Lord Vetinari. "'Remember the first interesting thing about angels I told you yesterday?' "'I expect you were thinking about something else. "'The second interesting thing about angels, Mr. Libvig, "'is that you only ever get one.' "'Chapter 2. The Post Office. "'In which we meet the staff. "'Glom of knit. "'Dissertation on rhyming slang. "'You should have been there. "'The Dead Letters. "'A Golem's Life. "'Book of Regulations.' There was always an angle. There was always a price. There was always a way. And look at it like this, Moist thought. Certain death had been replaced with uncertain death, and that's an improvement, isn't it? He was free to walk around, well, hobble at the moment, and it was just possible that somewhere in all this was a profit. Well, it could happen. He was good at seeing opportunities where other people saw barren ground. So... There was no harm in playing it straight for a few days, yes? It'd give his foot a chance to get better. He could spy out the situation. He could make plans. 
He might even find out how indestructible golems were. After all, they were made of pottery, weren't they? Things could get broken, maybe. Moist von Lipvig raised his eyes and examined his future. The Ankh-Morpork Central Post Office had a gaunt frontage. It was a building designed for a purpose. It was, therefore, more or less a big box to employ people in, with two wings at the rear which enclosed the big stable yard. Some cheap pillars had been sliced in half and stuck on the outside. Some niches had been carved for some miscellaneous stone nymphs. Some stone urns had been ranged along the parapet, and thus architecture had been created. In appreciation of the thought that had gone into this, the good citizens, or more probably their kids, had covered the walls to a height of six feet with graffiti in many exciting colours. In a band, all along the top of the frontage, staining the stone in greens and browns, some words had been set in letters of bronze. Neither rain, nor snow, nor glom of knit can stay these messengers abot their duty, Moist read aloud. What the hell does that mean? The post office was once a proud institution, said Mr Pump. And that stuff, Moist pointed, on a board much further down the building, in peeling paints, with a less heroic words, don't ask us about rocks, trolls with sticks, all sorts of dragons, Mrs Cake, huge green things with teeth, any kinds of black dogs with orange eyebrows, reins of spaniels, fog... Mrs. Cake. I said it was a proud institution. Who's Mrs. Cake? I regret I cannot assist you there, Mr. Lipvig. They seem pretty frightened of her. So it appears, Mr. Lipvig. Moist looked around at this busy junction in this busy city. People weren't paying any attention to him, although the golem was getting casual glances that didn't appear very friendly. This was all too strange. He'd been, what, fourteen when he'd last used his real name? And heavens knew how long since he'd gone out without some easily removable distinguishing marks. He felt naked, naked and unnoticed. To the interest of no one whatsoever, he walked up the stained steps and turned the key in the lock. To his surprise, it moved easily, and the paint-spattered doors swung open without a creak. There was a rhythmic, hollow noise behind Moist. Mr. Pump was clapping his hands. "'Well done, Mr. Lipvig. Your first step in a career of benefit both to yourself and the well-being of the city.' "'Yeah, right,' muttered Moist. He stepped into the huge dark lobby, which was lit only dimly by a big but grimy dome in the ceiling. It could never be more than twilight here, even at noon. The graffiti artists had been at work here, too.' In the gloom he could see a long broken counter with doors and pigeonholes behind it. Real pigeonholes. Pigeons were nesting in the pigeonholes. The sour, salty smell of old guano filled the air, and as marble tiles rang under Moist's feet, several hundred pigeons took off frantically and spiralled up towards a broken pane in the roof. Oh, shit, he said. Bad language is discouraged, Mr Lipvig, said Mr Pump behind him. Why? It's written on the walls. Anyway, it was a description, Mr. Pump. Guano. There must be tons of the stuff. Moist heard his own voice echo back from the distant walls. When was this place last open? Twenty years ago, postmaster. Moist looked around. Who said that? He said. The voice seemed to have come from everywhere. There was the sound of shuffling and the click, 
click of a walking stick, and a bent, elderly figure appeared in the grey, dead, dusty air. Groat, sir, it wheezed. Junior postman Groat, sir. At your service, sir. One word from you, sir, and I will leap, sir. Leap into action, sir. The figure stopped to cough long and hard, making a noise like a wall being hit repeatedly with a bag of rocks. Moist saw that it had a beard of the short bristle type, which suggested that its owner had been interrupted halfway through eating a hedgehog. Junior, postman Groat, he said. Indeedy, sir, the reason being no one's ever been here long enough to promote me, sir. Should be senior postman Groat, sir, the old man added meaningfully, and once again coughed volcanically. Ex-postman Groat sounds more like it, Moist thought. Aloud, he said, and you work here, do you? "'Aye, sir, that we do, sir. "'It's just me and the boy now, sir. "'He's keen, sir. "'We keeps the place clean, sir, "'all according to regulations.' "'Moist couldn't stop staring. "'Mr Grote wore a toupee. "'There may actually be a man somewhere "'on whom a toupee works, "'but whoever that man might be, "'Mr Grote was not he. "'It was chestnut brown, "'the wrong size, the wrong shape, "'the wrong style, and all in all, wrong.' "'Ah, I see you're admiring my hair, sir,' said Grote proudly as the toupee spun gently. "'It's all mine, you know, not a prunes.' "'Prunes?' said Moist. "'Oh, sorry, sir, shouldn't have used slang. "'Prunes as in syrup of prunes, sir. Dimwell's slang.' "'Dimwell a rhythmic rhyming slang. "'Various rhyming slangs are known "'and have given the universe such terms as apples and pears, stairs.' Rubberty dub pub and busy bee general theory of relativity the dimwell street rhyming slang is probably unique in that it does not in fact rhyme no one knows why but theories so far advanced are one that it is quite complex and in fact follows hidden rules or two dimwell is well named or three it's made up to annoy strangers, which is the case with most such slangs. Syrup of prunes, wig. Not many men of my age got all their own hair. I expect that's what you're thinking. It's clean living that does it inside and out. Moist looked around at the fetid air and the receding mounds of guano. Well done, he muttered. Well, Mr Grote, do I have an office or something? For a moment... The visible face above the ragged beard was that of a rabbit in a headlight. "'Oh, uh, yes, sir, technically,' said the old man quickly. "'But we don't go in there any more, sir. Oh, no, cos of the floor. Very unsafe, sir. Cos of the floor. Could give way any minute, sir. We uses the staff locker room, sir, if you'd care to follow me, sir.' Moist nearly burst out laughing. "'Fine,' he said. He turned to the golem. "Uh, Mr Pump?' "'Yes, Mr Libvig,' said the golem. "'Are you allowed to assist me in any way, "'or do you just wait around until it's time to hit me on the head?' "'There is no need for hurtful remarks, sir. "'I am allowed to render appropriate assistance.' "'So could you clean out the pigeon shit and let a bit of light in?' "'Certainly, Mr. Leapvig. "'You can?' "'A golem does not shy away from work, Mr. Leapvig. "'I will locate a shovel.' Pump set off towards the distant counter, and the bearded junior postman panicked. No! he squeaked, lurching after the golem. It's really not a good idea to touch them heaps! 
"'Floors liable to collapse, Mr Grote?' said Moist cheerfully. Grote looked from Moist to the golem and back again. His mouth opened and shut as his brain sought for words. Then he sighed. "'You'd better come down to the locker-room, then. Step this way, gentlemen.' Moist became aware of the smell of Mr Grote as he followed the old man. It wasn't a bad smell, as such, just... odd. It was vaguely chemical, coupled with the eye-stinging aroma of every type of throat medicine you've ever swallowed, and with just a hint of old potatoes. The locker room turned out to be down some steps into the basement, where presumably the floors couldn't collapse because there was nothing to collapse into. It was long and narrow. At one end was a monstrous oven, which, Moist learned later, had once been part of some kind of heating system, the post office having been a very advanced building for its time. Now a small round stove, glowing almost cherry red at the base, had been installed alongside it. There was a huge black kettle on it. The air indicated the presence of socks, cheap coal and no ventilation. Some battered wooden lockers were ranged along one wall, the painted names flaking off. Light got in, eventually, via grimy windows up near the ceiling. Whatever the original purpose of the room, though, it was now the place where two people lived, two people who got along but nevertheless had a clear sense of mine and thine. The space was divided into two, with a narrow bed at either end. The dividing line was painted on the floor, up the walls, and across the ceiling. My half, your half. So long as we remember that, the line indicated, there won't be any more trouble. In the middle, so that it bestrode the boundary line, was a table. A couple of mugs and two tin plates were carefully arranged at either end. There was a salt pot in the middle of the table. At the salt pot, the line turned into a little circle to encompass it in its own demilitarised zone. One half of the narrow room contained an overlarge and untidy bench, piled with jars, bottles and old papers. It looked like the workspace of a chemist who made it up as he went along, or until it exploded. The other had an old card table on which small boxes and rolls of black felt had been stacked with slightly worrying precision. There, on a stand, was also the largest magnifying glass Moist had ever seen. That side of the room had been swept clean. The other was a mess that threatened to encroach over the line. Unless one of the scraps of paper from the grubbier side was a funny shape, it seemed that somebody, with care and precision and presumably a razor blade, had cut off that corner of it that had gone too far. A young man stood in the middle of the clean half of the floor. He'd obviously been waiting for Moist, just like Grote, but he hadn't mastered the art of standing to attention, or rather had only partly understood it. His right side stood considerably more to attention than the left side, and as a result of this he was standing like a banana. Nevertheless, with his huge nervous grin and big gleaming eyes, he radiated keenness quite possibly beyond the boundaries of sanity. There was a definite sense that at any moment he would bite, and he wore a blue cotton shirt on which someone had printed, Ask me about pins. Um, said Moist. Apprentice Postman Stanley, mumbled Grote. Orphan, sir, very sad. Came to us from the siblings of Offler Charity Home, sir. Both parents passed away of the gnats on their farm out in the wild, sir, and he was raised by peas. Surely you mean on peas, Mr Grote. By peas, sir. Very unusual case. A good lad if he doesn't get upset, but he tends to twist toward the sun, sir, if you get my meaning. Er, uh, perhaps, said Moist. 
He turned hurriedly to Stanley. "'So, you know something about pins, do you?' he said in what he hoped was a jovial voice. "'No, sir,' said Stanley. He all but saluted. "'But your shirt says—' "'I know everything about pins, sir,' said Stanley. "'Everything there is to know.' "'Well, that's—' uh, Moist began. "'Every single fact about pins, sir,' Stanley went on. "'There's not a thing I don't know about pins. "'Ask me anything about pins, sir. "'Anything you like at all. "'Go on, sir.' "'Well,' Moist floundered, "'but years of practice came to his aid. "'I wonder how many pins were made in this city last year—' "'He stopped. "'A change had come across Stanley's face. "'It smoothed out, "'lost the vague sense that its owner was about to attempt to gnaw your ear off.' Last year, the combined workshops or pinneries of Ankh-Morpork turned out 27,880,978 pins, said Stanley, staring into a pin-filled private universe. That includes wax-headed, steels, brasses, silver-headed and full silver, extra-large, machine and handmade, reflexed and novelty, but not lapel pins, which should not be grouped with the true pins at all, since they are technically known as sports or blazons, sir. "'Ah, yes. I think I once saw a magazine or something,' said Moist desperately. "'It was called, um, Pins Monthly?' "'Oh, dear,' said Groats behind him. Stanley's face contorted in something that looked like a cat's bottom with a nose. "'That's for hobbyists!' he hissed. "'They're not true pinheads. They don't care about pins. Oh, they say they do. But they have a whole page of needles every month now. Needles? Anyone could collect needles. There are only pins with holes in.' "'Anyway, what about popular needles? "'They just don't want to know.' Uh, "'Stanley is the editor of Total Pins,' Grote whispered behind Moist. "'I don't think I saw that one,' Moist began. Uh, "'Stanley, go and help Mr Lipvig's assistant find a shovel, will you?' "'said Grote, raising his voice. "'Then go and sort your pins again until you feel better. "'Mr Lipvig doesn't want to see one of your little moments.' "'He gave Moist a blank look. "'They had an article last month about pin cushions,' "'muttered Stanley, stamping out of the room.' The golem followed him. "'He's a good lad,' said Grote when they were gone. "'Just a bit cut and plate in the head. "'Leave him alone with his pins, and he's no trouble at all. "'Gets a bit intense at times, that's all. "'Oh, and on that subject, there's the third member of our jolly little team, sir.' A large black-and-white cat had walked into the room. It paid no attention to Moist or Grote, but progressed slowly across the floor towards a battered and unravelling basket. Moist was in the way. The cat continued until its head butted gently against Moist's leg and stopped. "'That's Mr Tiddles, sir,' said Grote. "'Tiddles?' said Moist. "'You mean that really is a cat's name? I thought it was just a joke.' "'Not so much a, a name, sir. More of a description,' said Grote. "'You'd better move, sir, otherwise he'll just stand there all day. Twenty years old he is and a bit set in his ways.' Moist stepped aside. Unperturbed, the cat continued to the basket where it curled up. "'Is he blind?' said Moist. "'No, sir. He has his routine and he sticks to it, sir. "'Sticks to it to the very second. "'Very patient for a cat. "'Doesn't like the furniture being moved. "'You'll get used to him.' Not knowing what to say, but feeling he should say something, Moist nodded toward the array of bottles on Grote's desk. "'You dabble in alchemy, Mr Grote,' he said. "'No, sir. I practice natural medicine,' said Grote proudly. "'Don't believe in doctors, sir. Never a day's illness in my life, sir.' He thumped his chest, making a slap noise not normally associated with living tissue. "'Flannelette, goose grease and hot bread pudding, sir. Nothing like it for protecting your tubes against the noxious effluviances.' 
I puts a fresh layer on every week, sir, and you won't find a sneeze passing my nose, sir. Very healthful, very natural. Er, uh, good, said Moist. Worst of them all is soap, sir, said Groat, lowering his voice. Terrible stuff, sir. Washes away the beneficent humours. Leave things be, I say. Keep the tubes running. Put sulphur in your socks and pay attention to your chest protector and you can laugh at anything. Now, sir, I'm sure a young man like yourself will be worrying about the state of his... What's this do? said Moist hurriedly, picking up a pot of greenish goo. That, sir, wart cure. Wonderful stuff. Very natural. Not like the stuff a doctor would give you. Moist sniffed at the pot. What's it made of? Arsenic, sir, said Grote calmly. Arsenic? Very natural, sir, said Grote, and green. End of CD 1